Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, and you will find rest for your souls, says Jesus in St. Matthew's Gospel. We're used to the idea of religious faith as a source of solace and support, but what happens when it becomes a psychologically destructive force that causes severe mental health problems? My name is Mark Dowd, and in this edition of Things Unseen, the programme for those of you who may not think of yourselves as religious, but who sense there's more to life perhaps than the purely material, we're looking at something called RTS. No, it's not a high street bank. RTS stands for Religious Trauma Syndrome. Psychologists who have coined this term speak of individuals who've been brought up in enclosed faith communities and who've been severely disturbed by teachings on hellfire, a vengeful God and the last days of the apocalypse. If such individuals do not conform or try to move away from such communities, they are, it's said, subject to intense psychological pressure. Even when people do break free later in life, the traumatic effects, claim experts, can be almost impossible to shake off. A prime exponent of religious trauma syndrome is the American psychologist Dr. Marlene Winnell, who's author of the book Leaving the Fold. I've been speaking with her, and I began by asking Marlene how exactly are we to understand this term, religious trauma syndrome. One thing to mention is that when I talk about religious trauma syndrome, I'm not talking about uncovering some hidden trauma in the past, like some kind of hidden memory or something like that. What I'm talking about is something that's quite present. And a syndrome is generally something that just refers to a collection of symptoms that go together. And so what I was trying to do was name that, name that collection of symptoms, and then to try to identify what that experience has been. And what's happened is that people have resonated so strongly because it is an experience that is so widespread. And so I've tried to identify aspects of it that are unique You're a psychologist and also you're a therapist. I mean, in classic terms, you say that religious trauma syndrome comes with these very specific symptoms. Just in in headline terms, what would we see if we saw a number of individuals presenting with this syndrome? The symptoms can be emotional. It can be depression, anxiety. It can be severe panic attacks. It can be nightmares. It can be ongoing anxiety. It can be ongoing serious depression. To which I would say all the things you've listed, I could think of the secular Mm -hmm. equivalents of all those. So what particularly ties it now to religion? Okay, there are certain things in religion, both the teachings, certain doctrines that are taught to small children before they are cognitively mature, before their brains are able to handle the ideas that are implanted in their heads. Such as hell, yeah, and the the end times, the apocalypse, yeah. And also the idea of original sin, which is that you are born basically bad, inherently bad. And these are things that are supposedly solved by the religious message, but in actuality, there's no real solution that anybody can be sure of, and there's no real way of knowing that you're good enough 
And so even if you don't leave the religion, you can still suffer loads of anxiety. There are plenty of clients that I've had who talk about all through their childhood trying to get saved again and again and again and report trying to accept Jesus as their Savior hundreds, thousands of times and still not knowing for sure or trying to be good enough, worthy enough. A key thing here with all of the religions that create this kind of damage is that they're authoritarian and they're inflexible and they deny individuals the right or the ability to think for themselves and to respect their own feelings and intuitions about what's right and what to do. And so basically people learn to disable some of their basic abilities to function. And so this is what has to be recovered when they are in the healing process. Marlene, people can make the decision, I suppose, after a while to leave one of these authoritarian churches or groups. But Mm -hmm. is it your experience that even though they've made the intellectual journey to reject the theology, that they're still years on presenting with these symptoms of trauma? Well, see, that's the problem. That's why it's trauma and not just a bad decision that they can change their minds about. Indoctrination is not something a child has control of. It's also not something that you have much control of when you join a group, when you're in a vulnerable state as an adult. And something that most people don't realize is that much of the way that we function is unconscious, even as an adult. For a small child who's going to believe in Santa Claus and the Tooth Fairy and magic of all kinds, anything can be believed. But as children, and this is why childhood indoctrination is essentially child abuse, if what you're doing is programming a child's mind before the child has any idea what's going on. And you're infusing the child's mind with terrifying images. And images are more closely linked with emotion than words are. And if you'll notice, religions use very strong images. I mean, hellfire. You mentioned childhood there. You're not just an academic observer of this. I mean, you've lived through some of this yourself, haven't you? You were a member of something called the Jesus Movement with your family as a youngster. I grew up in a religious family. My own parents were missionaries, and most of my siblings are missionaries. An extended family and grandparents, it's a whole family of missionaries. Now, my family was not particularly harsh, but they still held to some of these doctrines. You described Jesus as your first lover, I think, in one article I read about your work. Well, as a teenager, what I meant was that I was very deeply involved with my faith and that as my imaginary friend and talking to Jesus and praying and reading the Bible and having my devotions, which is the word for prayer and Bible reading every morning and then communing in my mind with Jesus during the day and also speaking in tongues and singing in the Spirit and these kinds of things, it can be quite an intense relationship, very personal and very much about love. So that's what I meant by being my first lover and satisfying emotional needs in the same way that a really good imaginary friend can. I mean, minus the sex, but nevertheless intimate in every other way. Do you think you were at all damaged by your religious upbringing and the way that all of these narratives unfolded in in your own life? 
yes, I was very limited in how much I really thought for myself in that I was constantly keeping my thoughts very much within that system, which is what you're taught to do. There's a verse that says to take every thought captive to Christ. I studied the Bible inside and out. And then when I found out more about other ways of thinking in the world and went to college and learned anthropology and history and literature and things like that, I fought for a long time trying to make everything fit because I didn't want to let go because of the emotional ties that I had. But you did let go, didn't you? I did because finally the dam just broke, yeah, because there are pushes and pulls. It starts to just come apart when you study the Bible as literature and you find out what some of the problems are in church history. And then you also find out that there are other ways of thinking that are not stupid or crazy or evil. And there are other people that are functioning just fine and have ways of thinking and are happy. So you have to expand your thinking or go crazy. However, some people are able to maintain the cognitive dissonance for an amazing amount of time. There are needs that are being met. And this is the thing as a psychologist that I've looked at pretty closely, because sometimes getting those needs met can override the problems that are there, and people are able to repress those conflicts very well. It's amazing how much cognitive dissonance people can handle. Religion is woven into families and into the culture. When people walk away from their religion, they are going often against their families. Let me bring in your story because, I mean, you made that decision yourself. You're surrounded by all these siblings who are missionaries. I mean, how did they then look on you as the black sheep of the family? Or, Well, you know, they mostly didn't want to know about it. And this was strange to me. And later on, I found out that it's not uncommon that many, many families do that. They don't want to talk about it, and they just simply avoid it. And I think that it's related to what I just said about just avoiding knowing about things that are not going to be comfortable. From the picture you've painted, do you just advocate to people just getting away from religion full stop because of its potential damage? Because if you think of the damage, I'll speak from my own experience in the Roman Catholic Church, I mean, obviously, there's been ghastly stories both from the United States and the UK and elsewhere about the whole paedophilia crisis and so on. There's a lot of people who may just look back and say, you know, there are so many elements of these religious institutions which are flawed. Maybe better just to sever the ties. Well, I prefer to be more proactive and say, what is it that you're looking for? And to think creatively about what are the needs that you're really looking to meet. Because one of the things that religion tries to do is tries to be a package deal to meet a number of pretty legitimate human needs, and some churches even more than others, like some of these mega churches. And then people think that all of these things go together necessarily, and they don't necessarily. There must be people in America who get brought up with the idea that the Bible is the literal truth. They grew up in an enclosed fundamentalist community. But they make active choices to find churches that suit them. They find a way of getting off the shackles of all that without necessarily ending up in a mental health clinic, don't they? People can make intelligent choices of their own. And just because you've been brought up in this particular environment doesn't necessarily you're going to mean you end up in a situation of trauma. 
True. And I'm not saying that all churches are necessarily going to be hurtful. And there are people who do enjoy going to some kind of church or gathering and get something out of it. The reason why I have named religious trauma syndrome and the reason why I'm speaking out is because I believe that this is a problem that is far, far more widespread than people realize. I have had mail and clients that have made me realize that it's bigger and more widespread and worse than I ever realized. I got into a conversation about this with the cab driver on the way to the studio here. He wanted to know a little bit about what I was doing. I told him, and I ended up giving him my card on my way out because he wanted it for a friend of his who he thought was dealing with it. This happens to me all the time. And he understood exactly what I was talking about. And I said, it's interesting because people that are going through this can't talk about it with ex-Christians because they don't understand. And they can't talk about it with secular people because they don't understand. And he said, yes, exactly. But I suppose I could trade those experiences, Marlene, with saintly Catholic nuns feeding the poor in Africa every day and point to that and say, Religion, look at that. It's a saintly, inspiring force for good in the world. It all depends where you put your examples in life, doesn't it? And in your case, with your upbringing, I suppose you might have got off to a bad start. And it's unlikely you'd be working in this field if you'd been brought up in a very different religious environment. Well, I can talk to the Africa thing, too, because my brother and sister-in-law are big-time missionaries in Africa, They have many orphanages and thousands of churches and lots of medical clinics. And in their clinics, they refuse to give out condoms because they preach abstinence. And they do lots and lots of good work. They feed tons of people and orphans and all that. But it's all hinged on having them, these little children, confess their sins and come to Jesus. Now, so it's all conditional. The help they give it's all comes mixed at a price. in together. It's all mixed in together, and there's like this level of supernatural craziness that goes with it that everyone is completely impressed with, along with all the good works. And then there's all this claiming, and all the churches claim this, that they're the ones doing good in Africa. But if you look at it and compare that to all the secular organizations that are working there, and the secular organizations that are also trying to change the systems that are causing the poverty and illness, there's no comparison. Evangelicals are doing great business in other countries now because they're not as successful with evangelizing in the U.S. anymore. But I suppose on a pie chart of global Christianity, evangelical Christianity would still be a small segment. And that for a start, there's 1.3 billion Roman Catholics in the world and there are Episcopalians and Anglicans. And that's quite a rich community, isn't it, of different worshippers who hopefully aren't all (laughs) affected by this trauma syndrome. Well, first, it hasn't just been evangelicals. I have never tried to talk somebody out of their religion. I have only been interested to work with people who have already decided that they've wanted to leave and that they're having a problem healing and getting past it, and they've wanted to choose something different, and they're having a problem with functioning as a healthy human being. 
Dr. Marlene Winnell, psychologist and author of Leaving the Fold. So what's it like when you're not, as Marlene says, functioning as a healthy human being in the context of so-called harmful religion? Samantha Field describes herself as a recovering Christian and has a blog with the arresting title Defeating the Dragons. She spent more than 12 years in a fundamentalist church in the USA, so when I spoke to her, I wanted to know how that time had affected her. Well, when I was about 10 years old, my family started attending a independent fundamental Baptist church in the Deep South. And when we first started attending, we had no idea what we were going to be going through over the next 11 years. And over time, the pastor became more and more narcissistic, more and more controlling, and over time became what is called spiritually abusive. And it ultimately reached the point where it almost destroyed my family. My mom became suicidal. My sister almost ran away from home. I was very depressed through high school and early college. You talked about spiritually abusive. What particular actions or practices did this individual engage in? Well, in my particular case, I played the piano for church for many years for the congregational singing. And when I was about 15 years old, I developed tendonitis in my wrists, which meant that I couldn't play for church anymore. So my dad called the pastor and that Sunday morning I went to church and he preached a sermon on a passage from the New Testament that's known as the parable of the talents and said that there is a young lady in this church that has the most amazing talent to play the piano, but she is rebelling against God and she is in sin and God will take that talent away from her. God, how did you feel listening to those words sitting in the church? Um, I had to get up and leave and then I spent the rest of the afternoon sobbing because playing the piano for church had been one of the few ways as a woman I was allowed to participate So was it just him or was it the people around him as well? Because it sounds as though you're saying it was just almost like a a dictator. He was very much a dictator. The way that the church participated in the abuse was one of the ways that it was a cult. All of the individual families, we became over-involved in each other's lives. And there was so much pressure to conform, to do what the pastor said, to obey, essentially, and we all policed each other. When you're a part of a conservative fundamentalist group like this, it becomes so much it's our church and really just our church is the only one that's doing the right thing. It's the only one that's living Christianity out the correct way. And everyone else is doing it wrong. Everyone else is evil. Do you consider yourself still a victim of religious trauma syndrome? Yes, in a way. I've done a lot of healing and a lot of recovering, and I've been able to reclaim my faith in a lot of ways. But to this day, I have difficulty attending a church because ordinary, just churchy activities are nightmarish for me. And things that would be ordinary encounters between lay folk and pastors are just unbearable for me. So... Is that the trauma, the kind of echo memory of unpleasant experiences of the past that you're still carrying on in your life now? Yes. And 
a big part of being an independent fundamental Baptist is being indoctrinated into an incredibly narrow way of seeing God and of seeing the Bible and people who've left, you know, really conservative movements refer to certain passages in the Bible as being clobber verses because they're used to clobber you over the head so many times and they just use the Bible to beat you down. So now, even though I'm still a practicing Christian, I have difficulty reading my Bible because I get to a passage that I was told could only possibly be interpreted this horrible, violent way. Samantha, you were in this church for 12 years or so, I understand. What was the tipping point? What allowed you to make that move to break free? I understand that in this journey that you undertook, that you read a rather significant text, a book. Yeah, interestingly enough, I read Richard Dawkins' The God Delusion when so, I was... So you're now an atheist? Well, no. I felt that Richard Dawkins tended to strawman Christianity, even now to this day. I don't think he really understands what... He agrees with the fundamentalists about what Christianity is. And... You mean he just sets up easy targets and knocks them down? Yes. But he did have a description where he has that big, long description of God being a genocidal maniac. And it really startled me because it was the first time that I'd read anyone who was being honest about what fundamentalists believe about God. And I was just like, that's the God I was taught to believe in and taught to worship. And that's the God I thought I knew. And at that point, I was just like, well, I don't want anything to do with that. So for the next four years, I became what is known as an agnostic theist where I believed that there was a deity up there, but just didn't particularly care which one it was. So in a way, even though you didn't agree with the tenor of this book, in a sense, Dawkins helped you to kind of name and call the experience you've been through accurately. Yes. And then when I was in graduate school, I started digging more into philosophies and things like that. And I started reading people like Soren Kierkegaard, who I'd been told so many times that people like Soren Kierkegaard were of the devil. But I began reading these people who had complex, nuanced views of God and faith and what it means to be a person of faith that I realized I didn't have to adhere to the fundamentalist version of Christianity, that I could find something else that wasn't so toxic. In essence, I think you'd now describe yourself as a liberal Christian going to a liberal Christian church. What's the difference between the former church that you belonged to between the ages of 10 and 22 and the one that you attend now? Probably one of the biggest differences is how we interact with the Bible. We don't expect the Bible to be a library of books of anything except what it is, that it is histories written by ancient cultures, that it is poetry and myth and allegory and parable. And we don't try to say that this text must be taken literally and we must apply this as literally as possible to our lives, that there's a spectrum of meaning that there's some subjectivity to translation, to interpretation, to even what the authors were originally writing down centuries ago. And that has given me the freedom to explore what it means to be a Christian in the moment. As I'm alive today, when I was growing up, the only focus was about avoiding hell. But today I can study the Gospels and the stories about Jesus and see that he was a man dedicated to helping the marginalized and the oppressed and the poor, the widow, the orphan. And 
focusing on that is what it means to be a Christian and not avoiding hell. So there's a lot less fear around and quite a bit more love. Yes, absolutely. If faith is a vulnerable and fragile and precious thing in all of us, it could easily have been extinguished with the experience that you went through. Oh, very easily. And yet you still have it. So why do you think that's been possible? Um, Jesus, uh, getting to know the Jesus of the Gospels. And for me, a biggest part of it was I grew up in a movement known as biblical patriarchy. And I was taught that women shouldn't receive a college education, that they're not allowed to pursue dreams and goals. So for me as a woman, it was very difficult to accept that sort of faith when I wanted to do so much with my life. But it was Jesus reaching out to women and treating women as his equals and realizing that Jesus wasn't anything like I'd been taught that God was like helped me understand that, you know, if Jesus is God with sandals on, then I don't have to be afraid of him. Samantha Field. Many thanks to her and also to our previous guest, Dr. Marlene Winnell, for throwing light upon the fact that some aspects of religious faith and practice don't always, as is promised in the Gospels, set you free. A phenomenon without doubt that permeates the minority practice of many faiths, not just aspects of fundamentalist Christianity. If you'd like further information on Dr. Marley Winnell's work, you can go to her website, which is www.journeyfree.org. My name is Mark Dowd, and you've been listening to Things Unseen, the programme for the spiritually curious, for those of you who perhaps believe but don't belong. Things Unseen is a CTVC production. And you can hear this program again and find other editions of Things Unseen at www.thingsunseen.co.uk.